Hello, welcome back to the Fuck It podcast. I think I remembered the name this time. Um, welcome. My name is Caroline Dooner, if you don't know that, and uh, here we are. Here we are again. So right now I'm recording in my living room of my old house. I'm about to move this week on Thursday. It's Sunday right now. Um, and there is a, a huge fly flying around that I have been trying to get out of the house all morning um, and very unsuccessfully. Oh my God, there might even be two actually at this point. Um, and my dog, Molly, is so afraid of flies. When she sees one, when she sees one flying around, she like half tries to catch it with her mouth and half is petrified and horrified and thinks we're being attacked. And she cries and she stands on her hind legs and she like worries about me while I'm trying to get it. And it's just like, it's crazy. It's, it's really funny actually, if I'm able to capture it on, on camera, which I sometimes do. Um, it's a little sad cause she's like very distressed. Um, so it's anyone's guess whether this fly is going to disrupt, um, this recording. But hopefully it will not. I see it right now. It's chilling. Every time I open the door to try to get it out, it just, it won't. I think it's because it's finally cold outside and it usually will follow the light and fly outside, but I guess it's smart It can and it can feel that it's cold. I don't know. I don't know why I'm talking about this fly. Okay. So today's episode is the conversation that I had with Amanda Montel, the author of the book Cultish, which came out a few months ago. Um, she's also the author of the book Word Slut, and it's an it's a great conversation. I think you'll really enjoy it. And as you may know, if you've been around here long enough, you know how fascinated I am by what I call cult mentality, um, and otherwise known as black and white thinking, or really otherwise known as groupthink. Um, and I'm sure there are people who think that I over compare things to cults and cult mentality, I'm sure. Um, and I compare lots of things and almost everything. <laughs> I compare a lot of things to cult mentality um, because I think it's just that common and just that um, uh, important to be aware of because I think it happens all of the time. I think it's a spectrum. I think it's a slippery slope. I think it's very human. We do it all the time. Um, in the fuck it diet, I compare diets to religions and cult mentality. In my second book that is coming out in, wait, oh, it's almost November, November, uh, December, January, February, almost three months. That's so crazy. My second book, Tired as Fuck, is coming out February 8th. So I guess like three and a half months at this point. Um, and I, oh, one of the big, big, big themes in the book is cult mentality, um, groupthink, extremist thinking, zealotry, how I sort of applied that and applied that to the diets I went on and my quest for spontaneous, miraculous healing and the way that I approached all my self-help methods and self-help books I read, um, and also kind of comparing it to our culture at large with diet culture and and lots of other things. So it's a huge theme of my second book and a lot of the way that I think about things these days. And it's also uh, obviously the the very the very subject of Amanda Montel's book Cultish, except she, approaches it from a linguist's perspective and talks about the language of cults. It's really fascinating. Um, and we will get to that soon. I will I will play the conversation soon. Just trying to see if there's anything that I want to say before I play the conversation. I will be back at the end to ramble as I almost always do. I'm just trying to think. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll give you updates on what the hell's going on um, in my life with this move and, and everything after the conversation. But I guess before the conversation starts, I want to remind you that 
you know, if you're listening to this, you've probably heard me say this before, but my second book, Tired as Fuck, is available for pre-order. And if you pre-order, you will get bonuses as my deep and undying thank you filled with gratitude for supporting me and my second book launch. And if you go to thefuckitdiet.com slash tired, you can sign up to read the beginning of the book to see what you think and see if it's something you want to read more of. And if you pre-order the book, you can go to thefuckitdiet.com slash TAF bonus, or you can go to, this is so annoying, thefuckitdiet.com slash links, and that will also make it clear what to click to get there. But um, I'll also put this all in the show notes, but that is how you can learn about what the bonuses are, how to sign up and, um, and send in your proof of purchase. And yeah, there's lots of stuff and it really does help. Like it really genuinely, genuinely helps authors to pre-order. It really just gives the book the best chance of like a boost, um, with the launch and have more visibility and blah, blah, blah. So the other thing before I launch into this conversation, just for context, I talked to Amanda um, in our conversation about when I was a raw vegan and how I consider that one of my cultiest diets I was on and the cult mentality, the cult mentality that I had with diets. Um, and that is something that I, Again, I go into extreme detail. My second book is very much um, a very memoir-based. So it's a lot of my own experience with diets and um, extremist thinking and cult mentality and self-help and, and, and exhaustion, extreme exhaustion and burnout and then my two years of rest. So that's what my book's about. Um, if you're interested, check it out at thefuckadiet.com slash tired. This is my, this is my ad <laughs> for this episode. Uh, there will be no other ads except for this, me advertising my second book. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to play my conversation with Amanda Montel, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Talk to you at the end. Woo! Okay, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, <laughs> I'm always like a little overwhelmed these days, but like, you know, can't complain. <laughs> yeah, I know. I totally get it. Everything is crazy right now. Um, and you, how long has it been since your book came out? I mean, it's like only been like a month or two, right? Yeah. It's been uh, a month and a half just about. Wow. So. <sighs> How has it been? It's blowing up. It's so exciting. Yeah, it's been really cool. I mean, obviously it's been a trip as well because I wrote the majority of it in quarantine when I was barely Mm -hmm. interacting with any of my immediate social circle, much less like thousands of strangers. (laughs) Yeah, same with me. I got my second book deal from Harper Wave. We have the same imprint, which is so funny to me. Mm Um, literally the day before New York shut down. Whoa. So I, I was really thankful and lucky, but like, we were going to go to, like, we were going to try to go to auction and like shop it around. And we were like, nope, let's just take this. Let's just, yeah. <laughs> we don't know like what's going to happen. And then my next, you know, six to nine months was okay. F- finish this book. And I was like, what a crazy time to write about anything because like I don't know what the world's going to be like when this book comes out you know what I mean like I wanted to make I had like a million references to to quarantine because I was writing about rest and exhaustion and like stress and trauma and like I had all this stuff and then I and then I took it out in the last couple rounds but now it's finalized and now it's coming out in February. And I feel like we're still going to be in that. Like, it's just bizarre. I don't know Mm. if you felt that. 
Oh, completely. Because I mean, I was writing about the cultishness that exists in so many different pockets of our culture. And yes. the pandemic really brought out that cultishness. Yes. yes. And people just really looking for closure and answers and community during this extremely fraught time. So my book um, really went into a direction that I couldn't have anticipated before yes, the pandemic. Yes, um, that's so interesting. It really wasn't. I had a whole different vision for what I wanted the final part of my book to be. So a little mm. background for folks who probably who might not know what my book is. It's called Cultish, the Language of Fanaticism. And it's about the language of cults from Scientology to Soul Cycle. So it basically explores how language works to influence followers of groups as destructive as Jonestown and Heaven's Gate, but also how it works to manipulate folks who get involved with multi-level marketing and social media cults and fitness cults and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so many of these groups were emerging and radicalizing throughout the pandemic, um, which like was um, scary for the world, but good for fodder for the book. It was such an interesting time to be writing about that and reading about that. And, you know, I love it. I mean, I, I finished the audiobook last week and I just love it so much. And it's so up my alley. I, I have been fascinated by cult mentality and like groupthink and how much more common it is than we tend to think for mm. a while, you know, ever, you know, when in the fuck it diet, one of the chapters is called your diet might be a cult. And it makes this parallel between, you know, extreme diet mentalities, which I totally fell into. Um, and just kind of like the culture at large diet culture, which we're going to be talking a little bit more about today from your perspective and cults and sort of like the decline of, you know, religion is a central part of a lot of our lives and sort of the, um, the boom of, identifying through our diets and like finding peace and health and safety and salvation. Um, so I've been fascinated about this for so long, but I thought it was so cool that you were able to talk about all of it from, with, from the lens of language and rhetoric and, um, and even just like, I keep forgetting like cultish is a language like that. Yeah. That was the comparison that you made, like English, cultish. Yes, love I, we love a double entendre. So <laughs> my book is called Cultish in part because the wide spectrum of groups that I discuss in the book may or may not be considered full-blown cults by everyone. Although I also talk in the book about how the word cult actually has no hard and fast formal definition. Right. And a lot of scholars of new religions don't even use it because it's become so subjective and so sensationalized. Yeah, um, so but you, we can at least think of these groups along, along a cultish spectrum, but also, yes, cultish is the name of this system of language techniques that I describe in the book, like English or Swedish or Spanish, but cultish. Um, but yeah, so with the the diet and, um, and fitness industry, I mean, those are sort of related. Uh, yeah, I used sure. to be a beauty and wellness editor, so uh -huh. I kind of <laughs> in these waters a little bit. Um, and I, I grew up actually with a, a cult survivor in the family. My dad spent his teenage years in a prettiest, a prettiest, whoa, whoa, <laughs> words, a pretty notorious. Oh in a Prius? God. They had them? My dad grew up in a Prius. <laughs> that's hilarious. No, my dad grew up in a pretty notorious, that's my brain working faster than my lips. Um, I totally get it. I'm with you. Called, called Synanon, which is a sort of like socialist utopian commune in the 70s that turned out to be pretty violent and oppressive. Um, and I grew up on the stories that my dad would tell me of him being, you know, 14, 15, 16 in this group and realizing all these red flags that we would now associate as like the classic red flags of a destructive cult. Um, right, but yeah. what was always so interesting about his experience to me was the special language that they would use in Synanon to create an us versus them and encourage conformity and all that sort of thing. And I would notice Synanon-esque language in other pockets of my life that you might yeah. not think of as a cult like Synanon, but um, 
the beauty and wellness and diet industry was mm-hmm. totally one of them. And it was fascinating me to me to, um, you know, research this industry for the book. I went more into the, the cult fitness, you know, soul cycle CrossFit uh, side of things than the diet industry. But a lot of these things have in common because as you were saying, you know, our culture is increasingly moving away from traditional churches, traditional sites of community and spirituality and religion. Um, and so we're looking toward these more secular sites of right. fulfillment and meaning and purpose to fill those voids. And, you know, in American culture in particular, we have certain virtues that we value on the level of religious virtues, mm. which include, you know, progress and productivity and ambition and physical attractiveness. Um, yes. These are things that we really overvalue in this culture. Um, they're things that you know, make you a good person, a good American. Um, And even, or especially people who might consider themselves religious might throw themselves in a really fanatical, um, transcendent way into a diet brand or a a diet influencer or, you know, a quote unquote lifestyle. I saw you post about that the other day, how certain diets will brand themselves as a lifestyle and people come to, um, you know, associate themselves with these diets in a really sort of religious way. Um, And you can sense that, you know, in the way that people talk about their diets. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's interesting because you focus on the fitness, like, for instance, CrossFit and SoulCycle in the book. And I feel like that's such a great parallel to cults because there is like a CEO and there is this sort of like top down, um, there, uh, there's money exchange and then there's all the rhetoric and all of the like beliefs about who we are. Um, but what's so interesting is for diets, for me, like my big, whenever I talk about culty diets, my biggest culty diet that I was ever on was the raw vegan diet. Mm. And it's so interesting because I was so, I mean, I treated it like a religion so much, but there was no formal group, you know, there was no formal, um, there was no formal leader. Yeah. There were like the authors that I, you know, read their books and went to their restaurants and, but there was like a message board and there were, you know, it was like people, it was, it was this group think like we were kind of like perpetuating it ourselves. And I'll never forget the first, after a couple months, like I I had this belief with raw veganism that it was going to heal me from the inside out. It was going to heal all my health problems. I was going to, you know, just, it it was like the answer to all of my problems. Right. And I really bought in like so hardcore because I was so desperate. I had so many health problems in high school and it didn't clear up my skin. Like one of the big promises was you're going to glow. If you yes. eat hundred percent raw, you are going to glow. You're going to become so healthy. You're going to detox. And I didn't. <laughs> well, this is a classic red flag, right? I mean, I said that there's no hard and fast definition for what makes something a cult versus a religion versus another kind of social group, but you can kind of evaluate all the different red flags to determine exactly how destructively cultish something is. And one of the red flags for me is when a group promises these larger in life, larger than life things. And this is what the diet industry at large does. They're yes. not just promising that you know, you're going to lose weight or whatever. It's like the stakes are much higher than that. They're promising you, you know, there was this quote that a core power yoga higher up said where she was like, you're going to get, um, what was it? She was like, you're going to get flat abs and like, uh, enlightenment and flat abs in an hour or something like that. Yeah. These these diet groups promise too. It's like, you're not just going to lose weight. It's going to, clear up your skin, but it's not just the physical stuff. You're going to become a more fulfilled person. Mm -hmm. You're going to become a more whole human. So they make these really transcendent promises, but then they kind of bait and switch you because those promises actually cannot be fulfilled, particularly not with this like one size meets fits all kind Mm -hmm. of quack advice. Um, I was actually in the, the cult of 
uh, high carb, low fat veganism as well. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I, that was like a sect of my sect. I liked, I tried it all because my skin was horrible and the message board said, oh, well you should try to cut out all fat. And first I cut out all sugar. Can you imagine going on a no sugar raw vegan diet? I don't even know how I did that. What the hell do you eat? (laughs) I ate like nuts and avocado. It was crazy. And then that didn't work. And then I cut out all fat and ate almost only fruit for a little while. And finally, like, it was so intense that I was like, okay. Like after a year, I was like, something isn't right. You know? Yeah. Well, and then it to, you know, compare this, these groups, other kinds of more destructive cults like Nexium and the like, mm-hmm. what and, and lots of multi-level marketing companies or the close cousin of the pyramid scheme. What they'll do is that they'll they'll love bomb you with all this attention and all these promises for a better life, better skin, etc. And then um, when that invariably fails, they will then gaslight you into mm-hmm. thinking that the reason why this didn't work for you is because you didn't try hard enough. You clearly don't really care about this, even though the system is quite predatory um, and, you know, set up to fail. Nobody is going to, you know, sustain themselves forever on a, you know, raw vegan diet and have it cure all of their ails, physical, spiritual, and otherwise. But they will blame you because it's in the interest of the brand that you're patronizing or the influencer that you're following to, you know, maintain their power and their clout. And they're not going to do that by admitting that something that they did wasn't right or was predatory or was set up to fail. They're going to blame you. And because we're set up in this culture to blame ourselves when we don't work hard enough, we're we're willing to believe that. Um, And that is just a super culty element of the diet industry. It really is. And the other crazy thing about diets that makes it even, it makes it even harder to see that this is happening is that when you restrict food and then even for a lot of people, if they've been restricting food, but they're, you know, still kind of like feeling super guilty about food, it literally wires you to feel out of control around food. So it does become this vicious cycle where if you don't realize that that's what's happening, you're definitely going to blame yourself. You're definitely going to be like, wow, I really am a food addict. I really am out of control. I really do need to do like the amount of diets I went on that promised that it would heal my cravings. Like if you just stick to this perfectly, you'll never crave bad food again. And I believed it and it, and and like the euphoria in the beginning was enough to make that true. If that makes any sense. Sure. And then my body fought back hard enough. And I was like, oh my God, what's wrong with me. And I would just do it again and again. And again, sometimes the same diet, sometimes moving to another diet, but yeah, it was like, it was, it really is like this perfect biological um, mess that, that I, you know, I actually think in the beginning it was, it's kind of luck. Like I, I do think that big diet companies know I do. Um, I think some people, some of like the lower, you know, lower down people who are, you know, more like, you know, I guess the, like people who are leading the say weight watchers group meetings. I think that people Mm -hmm. do believe, like, I think they really do believe that they're helping themselves and other people. Oh, of course. But a lot of, a lot of cult leaders think that they're really doing something I right. Know, really I know, I know, I know. And I, I, I think they fell into this lucky thing where like, wow, like it backfires and it really looks like people's fault, but this is just what diets do. Like they're just, right, just going to do it over and, and over And when over you're again. in that space of conflict where you're like drowning in cognitive dissonance. You're like, I believe this one thing, but I'm feeling another, another thing. You know, we humans are really averse to those high levels of internal conflict. So we're going to defer to a guru or a brand or whoever we're sort of pseudo worshiping to tell us what we need to do to feel better, what we need to do to feel safe. And you were mentioning earlier how there's no like singular charismatic leader unifying you know, everyone who's involved with one quote unquote diet cult or another, but that's kind of like, um, the cult of even, even something as destructive as QAnon. Like there really is no one unifying leader. Who's like 
guiding everyone who subscribes to QAnon ideology into right. the dark or whatever. Like there are these smaller um, denominations, if you will, that assemble around, you know, this, this like doctor or this influencer or this YouTuber. Like for me, um, I was totally in the, well, I was in several like high carb, low fat vegan cults um, that assembled like parasocially around these different vegan YouTubers. And yes. I yes. really like just heed all of their advice. And, and speaking of the language you were talking about, you know, buzzwords like heal your cravings and how um, the word detox at a certain point became the buzzword that everyone was supposed mm -hmm. to use instead of weight loss. Um, right. And so you start to glom on to these buzzwords as a way to feel like you're a part of this community and you know what you're talking about, even though the leader of that community is an influencer who has no idea who you are. Right. And these buzzwords don't really mean anything. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. So I was going to say, can we talk about some of those? Those are really good ones. Some of the you talk about in the book and I want everybody to read the book because it's so fascinating. I love the way you break it all down. I already knew about love bombing sort of when you get like all of this praise and you're part of the group. And it sort of is like, it's part of the conditioning process. Um, it's kind of part of the like indoctrination process to be like, wow, I found my people. This is so great. Like, these are such great people. It's my like, life is going to be so good. <laughs> yeah. And, and the us versus them mentality, um, what I didn't, what you put so well are, is the thought stopping cliches, like the things right. that are kind of weaponized against you at a certain point to stop you from questioning or to put the blame on you or to kind of like make you think that you just need to work a little bit harder. Right. And that, that is so fascinating because that is something that I see across the board in any sort of culty group or culty. I say culty, you say cultish. I'm like, so yeah. used to saying culty. Um, culty was, uh, was an option. I was thinking of naming the book culty at a point, but then I discovered the double entendre of cultish. Yeah, no, I love that you did the cultish, <laughs> but yeah, like I, well, I always say culty or cult mentality mm -hmm. and like, I'm super, like I, I want to be super clear. And you said this already, like there is a difference between deliberate destructive cults with a manipulative, um, like narcissistic abuser at the head, who you know, like Nexium, for instance, like uh, my question, when I was watching those documentaries, the vow and seduced, I was mm -hmm. like, for a while, I was like, does he know what he's doing? Or does he believe it? Like, and then at a certain point I was like, oh wait, he knows what he's doing. Like, yeah. This is yeah. So deliberate. At a point, it's a mix of both because you have to kind of convince yourself that what you're doing is worth it and is benefiting everyone, especially you, right. um, or else no one else is going to believe it. Um, right. But right. yeah, no, these people are, are these opportunists who just follow um, whatever path is going to get them the most power. Like Keith Raniere, the Nexium guy, he was a failed pyramid scheme. Yes, yes. Yeah. I so, couldn't believe it when that was revealed. I was like, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Yeah. So like a thought stopping cliche for anybody who knows about Nexium would have been like, oh, you're having a negative emotion. You need to go back and do. Don't let yourself be ruled it. by fear or dismissing yes. valid concerns as limiting beliefs. Yes. So yeah. So these thought terminating cliches, um, this was a term that was coined in the early sixties by a psychologist named Robert J. Lifton. Um, and when I discovered this, I was like, oh my God, it's one of these things where once you understand what it is, you won't be able to unhear it and you'll be able to apply it to so many cultish groups that you're aware of. But it describes a sort of stock expression that's easily memorized, easily repeated and aimed at shutting down independent thinking or questioning. Mm -hmm. So right in Nexium, when someone was like, Hey, you know, why, when I'm being punished, do I have to like sleep on the floor? Like, is that really necessary? Or whenever you would try to push back against the ideology, they would hit you with one of these thought terminating cliches or semantic stop signs to silence you, to put your cognitive dissonance to bed. You know, it's mm -hmm. work to think and to question. It's a relief not to have to, particularly yeah. when you want so bad to believe in this rhetoric, you know, like you can't brainwash someone to believe something they don't want to believe. You can only give someone license to believe what they already do want to believe. And so if you, you know, speaking of our like vegan experiences and I'm still like, I'm still, 
I still follow a plant-based diet, but I just, I participate more casually. And this is yeah. the thing. Yeah. I want everyone food. to do what they want to do. That's what oh, I yeah. want. <laughs> no, I believe, like, I believe in a lot of the tenets of veganism, but I just think, you know, not to be bouncing around too much, but like, you just need to be able to participate casually. Like mm-hmm. if a group only lets you be all or nothing, yes. that's, um, that's a sign that it might be too cultish for comfort as I often yes. say. Yes. Yeah, in a group like Nexium, um, which definitely uh, encouraged people to put a hundred percent, hundred and ten percent of themselves mm-hmm. into the group, um, which is a very American mentality. But anyway, mm-hmm. they yes, whenever someone would try to ask one of those, you know, dissenting questions, Keith Raniere had this ability to be like, "Well, that's that's the fear talking, or those are limiting beliefs." And um, you know, the the tricky part, and this is what makes something toxic, is that there is truth in there. You know. Yeah. That is, that's the hard part where it's like, oh, like this, this did help me in this way. And then, and then it's hard to see that line where it tips into manipulation and abuse in like a very, yeah. But when you find that anytime you ask a question or try to express any kind of pushback, you get hit with one of those silencing stock expressions. That's a red flag because as so many of the scholars that I talked to for my book told me, Anything legitimate will stand up to scrutiny, whether you're talking about a spiritual group or a diet group or a fitness group or literally anything else. You should be able to engage in a dialogue about why a certain buzzword exists and what it means, you know, why a certain protocol is there. And if you're hit with one of those thought terminating cliches every single time, that's a sign that some power abuse might be going on. Yes, I just wrote that down. I'm going to I'm going to use that when we. When I'm telling everyone to listen to this, anything legit should stand up to scrutiny, big quotes around that. That's so good. Um, That's so true. Okay. So let's talk about, you said this for a second, but let's talk about the idea of brainwashing. Mm -hmm. Um, I love how you, you sort of just, you know, boiled it down and said, you can't brainwash anyone into believing something they don't want to believe. They have to want to believe it. And I feel like I've heard that about hypnosis too. I don't really know much about hypnosis, but people are like, you know, hypnotists can't like implant things into your mind. But if it is working, if you do believe that it is working, it's helping it, you, it can't basically take over your mind. It's only, you're only going to do things that you would want to do. Um, because, you know, in the book, you also talk about how, you know, lots of researchers have said that brainwashing isn't actually a thing. And I think I'm guessing what you mean is what you just said, that you can't totally hijack someone's mind to believe something they don't want to believe. That's right. Yeah. Like brainwashing is the explanation that all of these cult documentaries and cult coverage will give for why people wind up in these extreme groups. Um, But what we don't always stop to realize is that brainwashing is just a metaphor. Like it's not a real or testable phenomenon. Like you can't prove that brainwashing doesn't exist. So it doesn't right. like meet the right. criteria right. for the scientific method. Like it's, it's just a metaphor. Um, right. And it often works to, you know, pass judgment on people to um, dismiss our, our very real ability to make decisions. Um, one of the first people to bring up this, you know, myth of brainwashing to me was a religion scholar named Rebecca Moore, who comes to the topic of cults from a unique perspective because she had two sisters who died in Jonestown oh, wow. and in fact um, sort of helped orchestrate that massacre there. So she is one person who who would be, you know, very amenable to believing in brainwashing because it could help sort of like explain away behavior. Um, But there are plenty of people who may have found themselves in her sister's position and wouldn't have done the same thing. You know, they operated more or less freely. So a cultish leader can sort of radicalize you and push you further down the rabbit hole. But it's really never too late to express pushback if you want to. Right. Um, so that's really the the idea behind this myth of brainwashing. Um, gotcha. Is there another word that you prefer? Because, you know, when you look at like, you know, I kind of use the word brainwashing 
as a metaphor, of course, Yeah, sure. but when I talk about, you know, diet mentality and diet beliefs and what are told, you know, I say like, you know, we are in some ways brainwashed by our culture and by our media to believe that this is the way you have to look and the way that you should be to be a good person and a healthy person. And it's not that you can't unlearn those things and mm-hmm. question those things at a certain point, but, you know, kind of talking about brainwashing, I have found is it is kind of a helpful way to explain what's happening when we kind of go down the rabbit hole. Is there a better word that you like to use or do you like to just have qualifiers around it? Yeah. Well, so brainwashing is tricky because it's can often be used to like pass judgment on someone by calling them some sort of idiot, like, Oh, you're brainwashed. Yes. 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 Um, and that causes people to get really defensive. Like, no, I'm too smart to be brainwashed, et cetera. So I, I tend to use the word conditioned and like mm, you, you've okay. said it before too, like we're conditioned to think mm. such and such. We've been converted into this group. Um, we've been coerced into doing these behaviors that, you know, aren't, aren't ethical or whatever. So yeah, this is something else that I learned from that scholar, Rebecca Moore, is that we, we can talk about conversion and conditioning and coercion and those feel um like slightly less judgmental and slightly more accurate um in describing right. like how people can become psychologically manipulated gotcha that makes so much sense that's sort of like how the word lazy can be sort of weaponized like it's not yeah. an inherently bad thing to take time for yourself and or to even be quote-unquote lazy but when it's weaponized like you're a lazy person you need to just blah 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 then the word kind of takes on a new meaning that we don't people really shut down it's like nobody wants to be called lazy nobody wants to be told they're brainwashed just in the way that nobody wants to be told that they're in a cult right right. it's not an effective yeah way of communicating with people who you may want to help no matter how tempting it is to be like you're in the cult of raw veganism like i need to save you it's just like something that can very quickly alienate someone or cause them to shut down oh yeah there's no way that i would have responded well to that no No way if someone had told me that i was in a cult when i was high carb low fat vegan i i would have complete i would have like cut them out of my life I would have been like, you don't understand. You're just one of those stupid people on the, what, what I feel like, I don't know if they say this, or maybe the paleo people say this. I was also paleo, um, that the sad diet, the standard American diet, like, you know, that's the us versus them thing. That's like, no, but we know what we're doing. And you're just like a stupid civilian. Oh, 100%. Like when I was a very, very militant vegan, I was like, you you're brainwashed by the standard American diet. You know, it's just, it's not productive, um, to just, yeah, like psychologically and morally divorce ourselves from our fellow humans. (laughs) Um, and I, and I say all this from a place of like, I still think that, you know, incorporating like veganism into your diet, you know, if you're in a position to be able to do that is like a really, really good thing. But the dogma and the culture. Yes. And the lack of nuance and the lack of like being able to just look at things from other people's perspective or see that, you know, some people can't digest blah, 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 and can't be vegan as easily. Like to understand that there is nuance to understand how, how quickly we can become religious about things that aren't necessarily serving us or the world good like it's not good to create so many enemies like it's exhausting and I see it too I mean I see it like mostly politically and you know it's really amazing and like says something about this time in our culture that people default to wanting to divide us into an us and a them well I'm heartbroken by that honestly like every day I'm like oh my god we are like, we are not even, we are not even talking to each other. Yeah. We're just like getting further and further and further and further away. And, and it's because of this very kind of mentality that, that allows us to kind of dehumanize the other and we're both doing it. And it's just like, it's scary. It honestly, it scares me. It makes me it really me sad. Too. And I think, you know, this time in our culture, that's so fraught with, with the internet, like causing there to be, you know, a cult for everyone for better mm-hmm, and for worse mm-hmm. and people can radicalize more easily than ever. 
it's just, it's, it's pretty disturbing to me, especially when people start taking advantage of others' mental health when they're in a vulnerable state. And yeah, I just, you know, I, my whole crusade, if I have one, is just to encourage people to recognize the cultishness that imbues spaces we might not otherwise think to look. Yes. Yes. It's everywhere. And good people can do this. Good people do this all the time. Like our desire to be good can be kind of twisted and manipulated into this us versus them thing too. And our desire to belong. Like we just want to belong. We just want our lives to be meaningful. We just want to cope with like the ennui of human existence. Oh yeah. I love that word. That's a good one. (laughs) That's how I feel. Oh my gosh. This has been amazing. Can you tell everyone where they can find you on the internet and your book? Of course. Um, well, you can find me on the internet on Instagram at Amanda underscore Montel. I also have a podcast about um, pop culture cults called Sounds Like a Cult, um, oh, yeah. where we pick a different cult from the zeitgeist every week and try to determine whether it's a live your life, a watch your back or a get the fuck out level cult. I love it. I actually <laughs> only listened to the first episode. I guess I forgot to subscribe because I haven't seen more in my feed, but that's a good reminder because I loved that first episode that I listened <laughs> to. Um, yeah. And then Cultish is available in hardback ebook and audiobook wherever you buy books. <laughs> yes. I know. I love when people are like, where can I buy your book? I'm like, I don't know. Where do you want to go buy my book? <laughs> anywhere in the world. No, not anywhere in the world. I wish my book and my first book could be translated into other languages, but they're literally about English. So it makes it. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I never thought about that. That's yeah. fascinating. Okay. Very interesting. <laughs> So my next book, I'm hoping will be translatable. Yes. Yes. That can be your goal. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was so awesome. Thanks, Caroline. (laughs) So as always, all of the links to find Amanda and her book and her podcast will be in the show notes of this episode. And what else? What else? Okay. So it's Sunday, uh, October 24th. And I am moving. It's so crazy. I can't even believe it. There's part of me that is still in disbelief. And it's like, wow, this is a, this was a really um, <laughs> very fast decision I made um, to move out of the city and move to the suburbs. And so sometimes it doesn't feel real. And sometimes I feel like maybe I'm making a mistake. <laughs> and it's very bittersweet because I, you know, I've, I've lived in a city for the past 15 years, like really. Um, I lived in New York City for 10 years from when I was 18 to when I was 28. And then five years ago, I moved from New York City to Philadelphia, which is um, closer to where I grew up. I grew up outside of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Um, I say Pennsylvania because there's there's a Pennsylvania suburb of Philadelphia and there's a New Jersey suburb of Philadelphia, sort of like New York. There's a New York suburb of New York and a New Jersey suburb of New York. Um, so, you know, I really love living in a city. Like there's so much about it that I love. Um, but there's also so much about it that's difficult and especially difficult and a little bit different now after this past almost two years at this point it just isn't the same it just doesn't feel the same and it also made me really really want space uh, more space at least because I live in an odd little tower in the city and I really love it I mean it's so crazy because I came back every time I come back from being at the new house like getting things ready and getting a dehumidifier for the basement and building storage shelves in the basement and um, whatever else I've been doing out there. I had to get a whole new roof. Uh, Last week, they put on a new roof because it was really old and there was mold in the attic. So I had a mold remediation on Friday and I wanted to obviously get the mold remediation before I moved in. Uh, But I've been back and forth and every time I come back to this city, to my house in the city. I'm like, oh man, this is such a cute little house and I've loved it so much. And I hope that whoever buys it will love it 
just as much as I have. Um, so I'm getting ready to put it on the market. Um, the only reason I was able to have this overlap is because my parents helped me um, with the second house, which I know I'm very, very, very lucky, very lucky for. Um, but it allowed, you know, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't really thinking that I was going to be doing this as quickly. I was like, you know what, I've, I'm itching for a change. I am itching to get out of the city. I think it's time. I never expected to move out of the city being single, like never in a million years, but you know, life doesn't always happen the way you expect it to. So I started looking in August I started looking in August and then uh, I stopped when my cousin passed away and we we flew out to California to be with my family. Oh God, the fly. The fly is back. The fly is walking. Get away. Um, Thankfully, Molly's asleep or else she'd be freaking out. Okay. Uh, And then I picked back up again in September and I really thought that I was going to be looking you know, for six months or a year. Like I really thought I was going to look for a long time because the market is so crazy and, you know, it was just the very, very beginning of me thinking that I was going to move and I didn't really even know where I was going to move. I didn't even know exactly what I was looking for. And I saw, you know, a number of places and then I saw this little house that because what I was looking at kind of bigger houses further out from the city and farther away from my parents and friends who do live in the suburbs because that's what I assumed I could afford. I was like, well, you know, I can't probably can't buy a house in the like nicer areas. So I should, you know, look if I want something, if I want a house that's not falling apart, I probably need to look like pretty much further out and I looked at a lot of places out there out like further out and um what I quickly realized was these are amazing lovely houses for a family of four (laughs) I don't need four bedrooms and or huge 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 yard even though like part of me was like oh I want all this space I I want to start a farm not really but I want to start a huge garden and blah 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 and after really thinking about it I was like why why on earth would I me just me and my dog buy a house really far from everyone I know a huge house <laughs> that I don't need And a huge yard that I don't need that, you know, I, I own this house in the city and I've owned it, owned it for five years, but there's so much that I don't have to do or worry about or think about with a city house. I don't have to think about managing a yard and leaves and, um, even like cleaning a gutter. Like I don't have any trees that are above my gutter line. So I never need to really think about that. Um, I don't need to think about cutting grass. I don't need to think about a lot of things. I don't even need to, I barely need to think about shoveling. And, you know, when it snows, I can park my my car in a garage in the city and all this stuff. So there's so much. Oh, well, I don't even need to drive. Like when it snows, because I live in a city and I don't have to commute anywhere, I am just like, well, whatever, I'll just wait till that, you know, usually I can just wait till it all melts. Anyway, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot that I'm going to have to do. And there are moments where I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? Am I insane? Am I like, am I wrong? Am I making a huge mistake? Um, But realizing that the houses even farther out and the, the bigger the house and the bigger the yard and the further away from people I am, like the stupider a choice that would be in my current situation where it's just me. Um, so I, I eventually told my realtor, I was like, you know what? I really don't need that big of a house at all. And I don't need that big of a yard. I just want it to be a yard where I can teach myself how to make a little garden. And 
a house that has a little bit more room than my current one. My current one is 8,000 8, 8, square feet. My current one is 800 square feet, including the basement, which is the kitchen. My kitchen is in the basement. It's this, if you want to look up the kind of house I live in, it's called a Trinity house. Um, anyway, I am 100% rambling, but I'm moving, I guess. that. Oh, so I found a little house really close to my parents like literally five four or five minutes four five minute drive from my parents like a 20 to 25 minute walk from my parents right next to the school that I went to for 12 years um and I didn't even realize this when I put the offer in the house but or I guess I didn't think about it too hard but my my, my dad's best friend, more my parents' best friends, have always lived a street over in this little neighborhood. Um, and my, my dad's brother had a house there when his kids were really young. And my dad's sister also had a house there when his kids were really young. And my mom's brother rented a house there when he and his wife and their young children moved from California before they found the house that they bought. So it's it really is kind of like home. Like it it's like moving back to where I grew up from grew up from. Grew up where moving back to where I grew up. And so there's a comfort there and um it's very weird. Like there's still part of me that's like, am I really doing this? Am I really doing this? Am I really gonna learn how to compost and make a garden? I better, because that's what I keep saying. It's gonna be a steep learning curve. Um there's something in me that like really wants that. Like I crave I crave that, but I I am so skillless. <laughs> I have no skills. I don't know how to do anything. I barely know how to cook anything besides casseroles. Um, okay, so I'm moving on Thursday. I um, Tomorrow, my realtor, who also happens to be my uncle, <laughs> who also happens to be the person who lived in the neighborhood that I'm moving into when he and his wife and his kids were young, um, he, I'm getting realtor pictures done of my city house tomorrow. So after I finish this, all I'm doing all day long is cleaning and organizing my house and getting it ready for realtor pictures. And then in like late afternoon, early evening, I am driving out to my new house to meet a handyman who is going to switch out my shower head because I turned on the shower to test it out and the shower head is so broken that it doesn't you can't uh you can't uh aim it anywhere it just points straight down and the water shoots out the top and all over the bathroom so I was like okay priority number one for handyman is Fixing the shower head. Well, I bought a new shower head. My God, is this the most boring thing ever? Most boring content ever. I bought a new shower head. Though yesterday there was a wasp in the bathroom and I there was nothing in the entire house that I could kill it with. So I took the shower head package and I slammed it down on the wasp. And then I was like, fuck, did I just break this $50 shower head? And why was it $50? I don't know. It was the highest rated shower head on, at Home Depot online and um I bought it and maybe I broke it yesterday it uh, only time will tell I guess I'll find out later but I did kill the wasp and um so things are looking up so that's what I'm doing today do I have a point I, I don't even know if I have a point so this week okay tomorrow there's realtor pictures and then um Wednesday, okay, because my dog is petrified of not only flies, but cardboard boxes, I cannot pack. 
I can't pack. And my house is so small. Every single room is 200 square feet. So if I had just two boxes on every floor, she would be having panic attacks and barking nonstop and like not like not moving, you know. Um, so I realized that what I needed to do was I needed to wait till the last minute and to have Molly watched by my friend Sam, who loves her, who is essentially her uncle, and then have her watch the day before I move and then hire the moving company who's moving me on Thursday to pack everything up on Wednesday. Because otherwise, if I was packing myself, and I actually really like the process of packing because it's almost like a decluttering process. It's like, oh, I don't need that. I don't need that. But I do want this. But I would have needed to start it to, I would have needed to start packing last week, you know? Um, and there's just no way. There's just, there's like 100% no way. So I'm hiring a company. Oh my God, there are two flies in my house. This is crazy. They just won't leave. Um, hiring a company to pack and then I'm moving on Thursday and then I'm going to spend that entire afternoon and evening and following next day trying to unpack as much as I possibly can and break down as many boxes as I, as I possibly can so when Molly does arrive to the house and we're all moved in she's not petrified of the new house because it's filled with scary boxes so you know got to do what I got to do um the other thing is because this house is so tiny and the stairs are so narrow they're twisty stairs my house my sorry my current city house where I currently live and have lived for five years it's so tiny and the stairs are so crazy that there's um there's a lot of built-ins in this house and there's also not a lot of space and there's only one bedroom and blah, blah, blah. So I really genuinely do not have much furniture. So when I move in, it's going to be like the most sparse house ever until I can very slowly <sighs> furnish it. If ever, maybe I'll never furnish it. I don't know. I have no idea. I just ordered a couch and it almost just killed me. Like the decision was way harder than I, I feel like it should have been. Um, but the other thing about couches these days is if you order a new couch and it's not like ready to ship and it's being custom made by whoever you ordered it from, because of these, the supply chain issue, like, honestly, I, I genuinely don't know if it's ever going to come. <laughs> Maybe it'll come next year, like October, 2022. I don't know. Obviously I have my my lumpy Ikea couch that I'll move and have until the new couch comes. But I think there must be something else I was going to say, but maybe not. Oh, so last week, uh, this past week, so this past Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I recorded the audiobook for Tired as Fuck. And it was, it's really exhausting. Like it really, you really are genuinely sitting there trying to, you're reading cold because I didn't memorize the whole book. You know, you're reading each line, line by line by line. And yes, I wrote it, but I, you know, it's not memorized. <laughs> um, so you're reading for like six or seven hours in one day. And, uh, I knew that I had to, so they, they blocked out the whole week, five days, but I knew that I had to, um, be finished by Friday because the mold guy, the mold remediator was coming to my house in the suburbs on Friday. So I read as fast as my little, not fast, not like I didn't like say the words fast, but I was like, I have to get through this because I remember when I recorded the fuck a diet audiobook. It was the first time I'd ever done it. So like you have to get used to how it works and, you know, you read, the way it works is you read as many lines as you can until you mess up or until you don't like the way you've read it or until the director who's in your, um, in your headphones, who's not there, she was in New York, but she, she 
is a part of the process and so is the sound engineer and sound editor who's who's not in the booth who's like in the other room but you're all you know connected by speakers and so she'll stop and say can you take that again and can you blah 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 or oh she actually a lot of what she did was say oh you um you actually said the and not uh and then you have to do it over again because you have to say it exactly the way you wrote it and there are times when I'm like "Mm, but can't I just change that tiny tiny little word because I wrote it and I don't like how I wrote it (laughs) but you have to say it exactly the way that it's written um and oh anyway so you read it until you mess up or until you don't like the way you've read it or until they stop you and say can you do that again you messed up that word or um oh there's there was a mouth sound on that like or I heard your wrist crack on that can you take that again and then you just go back to the beginning of the sentence or the phrase and you do it again um and it takes a little while to get into the flow of that. And also with the with the, the first time I did it, I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know, like, do I wait till you stop me? Am I allowed to stop myself and then go back? Like, how does it work? But be, so it took a lot longer to do the first one because it took me a long time to get into the swing of things. And then with this one, I got into the swing of things really quickly. So I was able to just bang through and I finished it in three days but then we had like we literally had 16 pages left of the book oh can you hear that I I never know what you can hear I hear that so loud it's an airplane um there were 16 pages left in the in the recording of the book and the internet went out so the zoom we were all in a zoom not not video just audio in my headphones and so the zoom cut out and so the director wasn't able to listen anymore she was like you know not a part of the process anymore and we were like oh no 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 and um it never came back and and the sound engineer was like okay it would just be so brutal if we had to stop with 16 pages left and then you had to come back in So we waited, we waited like a half an hour to see if it came back. And then it was like the end of the day on Wednesday. And I was like, oh my God, this is exhausting. But uh, it didn't come back. So we like rigged a cell phone to like, she was on the cell phone in the other room and blah, blah, blah. And it was fine. And it all worked out just fine. Um, All right. I guess that's all I have to say. I guess that's all. Okay, so in theory... In theory, I am going to be recording, well, I already recorded the conversation. I actually have two conversations that I'm going to put into one episode for the next episode that comes out. Um, It's two different anti-diet PCOS nutritionists. For anyone who um, is curious about PCOS and insulin resistance, and also this would apply to anyone who's curious about diabetes, Um, but even if you don't have PCOS or insulin resistance or diabetes, I think it's really interesting to listen because it, it's a very similar concept to apply the anti-diet and intuitive eating methods to other health problems. So I think it'll be nice for everyone to hear and to hear kind of like the, the way we approach healing or even just you know symptom management or health management with certain health issues from an anti-diet perspective especially with certain syndromes and diseases that the mainstream considers a very um, weight centric health problem if that makes any sense so for instance with PCOS which I was diagnosed with when I was 14 and many women are um, the focus is weight. Okay. Well, weight gain is a symptom of PCOS. So if you can 
lose weight and micromanage your eating and exercise all the time, then um, that's the way that we're going to have you try to manage this and we're going to maybe give you a couple other things, a couple other drugs or supplements, um, a lot of times to mask symptoms. And um, we're just going to totally ignore the fact that dieting Uh, and losing weight intentionally is wired to backfire and cause weight cycling, which in turn exacerbates insulin resistance, which is another piece of PCOS. So kind of turning that all on its head and looking at it from a different perspective and hearing from two people who do this for a living, I think is really interesting. And the reason that I did two different people is because I just, I wanted to talk to both of them. And I also thought that it would be nice to hear similar and also ever so slightly different ways of explaining a very similar thing from two different people and not just one person. Um, So that in theory, again, will be coming out next week, but because I am moving and going to be unpacking and then it's Halloween on next Sunday, I is it Sunday? Hold on, let me check. Halloween is, what day is it today? Oh yeah, it is next Sunday. I may not get to it. So maybe it'll come out later in the week. Maybe it'll be two weeks, but we'll see. I'll see what I can I can muster. And then my next couple episodes that I have lined up are conversations with the one, the only Africa Brooke. Africa Brooke, who you may know who that is. She's amazing. Um, If you don't follow her on Instagram, I highly recommend it. Jessica Defino, who is another amazing follow on Instagram. She has a very similar mentality to the fuck it diet, but with beauty culture and skin culture. Um, And there's a lot of overlap there. So I'm going to be talking to her on the podcast I'm going to be talking to Leslie Schilling about um, diet culture in uh, a lot of religion and Christian religions and and churches. And there's definitely someone else that I have lined up. I just can't remember right now. So hopefully there'll be plenty of interesting conversations coming your way. Um, Not all about diet culture, which is what I want. I want this podcast to be about lots of different things. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. I think I'm going to, oh, Molly just sighed again. I don't know if you heard that. Um, she's actively ignoring the flies right now. I think she's had enough trauma this morning, like sobbing. Oh my God. I, if I could easily extract the audio from the video that I took this morning of her like freaking out over the fly, oh, she sees it. All right, I'm going to sign off and I will talk to you either next week or the following week. We'll see. All right, bye.